0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading is taken from selected passages taken from the book of Ruth, beginning with chapter 1, the verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We go to the verses 16 to chapter 2 verse 3. They're on their way back to Bethlehem, but Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi! She told them, Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter." So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Chapter 3, the verses 1-4 to four. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Where you will be well provided for is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Chapter 4, the verses 6 to 8. At this the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The text for this afternoon is the word of our God, as the church has summarized that for us in Lord's Day 10. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with His hand He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things? and still upholds them by His providence. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hands that without his will, they cannot so much as move. So that's quite a story in the book of Ruth, especially chapter 1. The rest too, of course, but things are pretty bleak in chapter 1. There's a famine, and the older ones among us who have experienced a famine, for instance in the Netherlands, or others who have experienced hunger elsewhere, will know that a famine is not something you would ask God to give you. Those really are tough times. And then you move to another country, and your husband dies. And then one son dies, and then another son. And all you have left, that sounds a bit funny, all you have left is two daughters-in-law. Now that's that's a lot. But in those days where a society was really dependent upon men, to no longer have a husband and to have both your sons gone was an awful situation to be in. And so, from a human perspective, it's somewhat understandable that when Naomi returns to Bethlehem and the townspeople say, cry out, Oh, is this Naomi? She says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. That's right. Meran means bitter. Just call me bitter. Because that is really a little word picture about how I feel. And about how I feel the way the Lord has treated me. He hasn't treated me very well. and Because of that, I've actually become very, very bitter. Have you ever felt perhaps a little bit like that? You may not have had three loved ones die in quick succession. You may not have gone through a famine. But bad things, humanly speaking, began to happen to you. And then another bad thing. And then another. So much so that you begin to wonder, What is happening in my life anyway? Where's God in this? And so perhaps some of us may have felt a bit like Naomi. So that when people addressed us by our normal name, in our hearts we said to ourselves, Don't call me Ben. Don't call me Susan or whatever name. Just call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. It's not easy, is it? To believe in the providence of God. Sooner or later, we all begin to have problems with God's providence in our own life or the life of our loved ones. It's not easy to be patient when things go against us. And the old King James Version translates, patience with long-suffering can't remember if I told you that before, but it's long-suffering. That's what patience is. Things go against you. And you suffer because of it. You really do. But you suffer long. You don't throw in the towel. You don't drop the ball. You just hang in there with your God through faith. That's not easy. Why it's not easy to be thankful in prosperity. What do we have that we have not first received out of God's fatherly hand? And yet, it is so easy to take everything for granted. Just this past week, I got an email in some email group I'm in. And it was a new group, and I I didn't realize that the man who runs the group had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer back in August. So that, that was my first message I received. And he was almost as good as dead by December. And the doctor sent him home and said, you've got a few months left to live. And so he thought his condition would increasingly continue to deteriorate. And it got increasingly better and better and better. But then he had a dilemma, he and his wife. They they didn't quite know what to pray because they had been praying for healing. And it looked like he was healed. And so he didn't quite know whether he should continue to pray for healing. And so somehow the Lord instilled in his wife's and his own this wonderful biblical truth. We get up now and we thank the Lord for the healing that he gave for that particular day. He knows he's still terminal. Sooner or later he will die. We're all terminal in that sense. But so he and his wife just thank the Lord for the health that they get for one day. And he felt a bit embarrassed that at the age of almost 70 that he and his wife had to realize that. That you don't take your health for granted like that. And you pray for, oh, I'm healed now and I don't have to pray for, for healing anymore. Yeah. Pray for healing every day. And thank the Lord for healing He gives every day. And then... The other point of Lord's Day 10, the future. It's not easy to be confident with regard to the future. I mean, even when things go well, you just never quite know. I mean, there are all sorts of variables that can kick in just like that. And when things go against you, to then remain confident with regard to the future, that's not easy. And so it's good that the Church has the custom to preach on the Heidelberg Catechism, which touches on the main points of the Christian the tenets of the Christian faith. And so every 12 months or every 15 months, we just go through that together as a congregation. And so once every 15 months, ministers are obligated to preach on Lord's Day 10, on the providence of God. Part of our only comfort, right? And So, because we all need comfort when it concerns the providence of God, it's good that we are exposed to that comfort on a regular basis. But it's good to just ask ourselves what actually is meant with the providence of God. Now, if you take a look at the word providence, you can see the word pro video in there. Pro video. Strictly speaking, it's not part of the providence, but it's kind of like the part of the background of providence. And pro is beforehand, in advance, and video is, I see, right? Just like credo is, I believe. All of you who go to a credo school is you go to an I believe school. I believe in Jesus, right? I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, video is, I see in advance, that's what God does. He sees in advance. Now, you and I can only see in advance so far because we live in time. He goes, you know, an hour, two hours, day. You know, We've seen advance just so far. But God lives in eternity. He doesn't live in time. So for God, there really is no past and no future. For God, everything is present. God has, as it were, one giant snapshot, and He sees everything. But even though God lives in eternity, in the eternal present, He doesn't remain there in the eternal present. There was a school of thought around the 18th century known as deism where God was in the eternal present and He created everything, the world, kind of wound it up like an old alarm clock, and then God just kind of sat back on on a chair like this. He sat in a chair, you know, just metaphorically speaking, and He just, He just watches everything unwind. He doesn't, He's not really interacting with life in time. We don't believe that. We believe that the God who lives in the eternal present is involved in time. And that takes us to another little window into the word providence. You see the word provide in it. God provides. He's, he's literally involved in the present, uh, sustaining all of life, governing all of life involved with what we call the natural laws or things that human, humans tend to do, but somehow God is involved in that too. And Lord's Day 10 uses the metaphor of a hand for that. Just a hand. Three times Lord's Day 10 uses that expression. The hand. And so, Lord's Day 10 has been affectionately called the Lord's Day of God's hand. And it is just as beloved for many people as Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? And as we'll see at the end of the sermon, Lord's Day 1 and Lord's Day 10 are clearly connected. So, it's the Lord's Day of God's hand. And don't you think the composers of the catechism are trying to tell you something when they use that metaphor? Comparing God's providence to a hand? Don't you think they're trying to tell us that, well, why don't you ask yourself what you can do with a hand? With your hands. And then, keeping the necessary distinctions in mind or differences in mind, God can obviously do all of that and more with His hand too. And so without being exhaustive, I'd like to just mention four things that God does with His hand and what we can do with our hands. And the first thing we can do with our hands is work. Some people are busy with rough work. They get calluses on their hands. I don't do that kind of work, usually. So I sit at my keyboard and I just kind of type away at the keyboard. And do other things too, of course. But both kinds of work are work. And you can play with your hands. Right, children? Summer's coming, you're gonna to go to the beach, you're gonna use your hands to play. Get water out of the lake, bring it back to the sand, right? You can do that. It's, it's kinda of like a work. It's a playful work. You can write with your hands. You can draw with your hands. You can make all sorts of things with your hands. That's, that's all lumped under the category of working. But you can also show affection with your hands. When my wife comes home from the Surrey Covenant Reformed Church this afternoon, and I'm home earlier than she is, and if I run my hands through her hair, I do that with my hand. I am showing affection to my wife. Or if I put my hand on someone's shoulder, one of my boys' shoulders, you know, I am showing affection to that person. I realize these days you've got to be very careful with that, you know. But that provided it's done decently, you know, you are showing affection to someone. Why, even you can embrace people. Technically you don't do with your hands, but you kind of the whole arm is involved, but your hand's kind of act at the end of your arms. And so you embrace people with your hand, showing affection. You can communicate, it's the third thing, you can communicate with your hands. The serving elder shook my hand. Do you know why he did that? And when I'm finished, he's going to shake my hand too. He's communicating something to me, right? And then I go stand out in the hall and people come up to me sometimes and they shake my hand. You're communicating something with your hand. When I raise my hand like that and say, grace and peace to you, I'm communicating the greeting of God to you. Why you can even discipline people with your hand again that's that's a very controversial thing these days but you know if that's done properly you know you can actually discipline a person with your hand and you are communicating something to that person just ask the person who's on the receiving hand of the hand what's being communicated and finally you can help people with your hand I'm standing out there and there's an elderly person who comes by me. It doesn't even have to be elderly. It could be a young person too. And they they begin to stumble. I can actually stick out my hands and stop that person from falling. Someone's lost and I say, that's the way you have to go. You can even protect people. Also very, you know, we live in an awful society, you know. Someone's getting beat up and you want to protect someone with your hands. You end up getting beat up yourself. That's possible. But you, you can do that. You can protect people with your hands. And God does all of that and more with His hand, metaphorically speaking. Because He's a spirit, right? So He doesn't really have a physical hand like we do. But when the Catechism uses that expression, hand, and it's straight out of the Bible, the hand of God, then both the Bible and the Catechism is saying something about God is working. He's working in all the details of life. And as we can show affection with our hands, so God is showing affection in the various circumstances of our lives, as with His hand. And as we can communicate things with our hand, so God is always communicating things in the various situations of life, as with His hand. And as we can we can help people with our hands, so God is always there. His name is, I am who I am. I'm always there to help you, to save you, as with my hand. And you can see this hand of God throughout all of Scripture. But you can really see this hand of God so neatly in this little book called Ruth. And I read from the four chapters to just kind of show you how you can see the hand of God in various ways. For instance, you can see the hand of God in natural events. Like there was a famine in Bethlehem. Now, did that happen by chance? No, nothing happens by chance. So, God is busy in those natural events. Now, what's he doing with that famine? Well, we can communicate with our hands. Well, God is doing the same. He is communicating something. And we know from the blessings and the curses of the covenant that a famine belonged to a curse of the covenant. So if God's people deliberately turn their backs on the Lord for extended periods of time, God just might communicate His displeasure to His people by sending a famine. And seeing that the book of Ruth takes place is situated during the time of the Judges, and we know from the book of Judges that that was not a very, very morally uplifting time, it's pretty obvious that God was communicating His displeasure to the people in Bethlehem. God is communicating with His hand, But He's also showing affection. Because in sending a famine, God's not saying, I don't like you anymore. See, that's what we may do when we do bad things to people. At least they look like they're bad. I don't like you anymore, so I'm going to be nasty to you. But God's not like that. God does that in love. Because God wants His people to serve Him again. To walk in His ways. And pain has been called God's megaphone. Like, wake up, People! Remember what I said in the book of the covenant, right? About unbelieving behavior. I might send a famine. So, wake up! Right? It's God's megaphone. He wants His people to come back to Him. Communicating displeasure. But also communicating affection to His people. In natural events. But God is also present in apparently chance events. It's interesting in chapter 2, I think it's verse 3, where you read that Ruth just happened to be gleaning in the field of Boaz, who just happened, of course, to be a relative. This just happened. you see how we even use that too? Just, just kind of happened. We even say accidentally it just kind of happened. But God was leading this whole thing. God wanted Ruth and Boaz to meet and fall in love. So God was busy directing, just like we can show people the way with our hand. So God was showing Ruth and Naomi the way. That's where you have to go. He was providing with his hand as well. I mean, Ruth comes back with just, you know, just all of this grain. And they needed that. And so God was not just pointing the way. He was also opening his hand and providing Ruth and Naomi with what they stood in need of. God at work in apparently chance events, things that just seem to happen, but they don't just seem to happen. God is the director behind everything. And then in chapter 3, you see that God's hand is also involved in the crafty schemes of human beings. I mean, you will have to agree with me that that was a pretty crafty scheme of Naomi. Well, I have to get you a husband, right? And I know that they're going to be on the threshing floor tonight and they'll have a few extra drinks perhaps. Why don't you go there? Take a good bath. Put on some nice, smelly, or smelling perfume, you know. Just, oh. And then... At the right time, just go lay down at his feet, and he will tell you what to do. That wasn't just a crafty scheme. That was a risky scheme. We know from the end of Judges that women were molested during the times of the Judges. Other times, too, but especially there. And so Ruth may have had, or Boaz may have had an a little eye on uh, Ruth already, and had a crush on her or whatever, but he's got his workers there. And you never know what those workers are going to do. So Ruth really ran the risk of getting molested. And just as we can protect people with our hands, so God was protecting Ruth in a potentially really difficult situation where she makes a marriage proposal to Boaz. And then, fourthly, God's hand is present in the legal processes. Like there was this one kinsman redeemer who was actually closer. But God didn't want him to redeem. God wanted Boaz to do that. And so God allows this Fellow that's closer, a closer relative, to act in his own selfish way. God didn't instill that selfishness in him, but God just allows that selfishness to, to play a role, so that he's not going to redeem Ruth. And he overrules, or he guides that legal process in such a way, with his hand, so that Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. and Finally, we see God's hand present in biological events. Do you ever wonder why Ruth never had a baby with Malon? I don't know, really. But she never had a baby with Malon. We could speculate about that. We could wonder whether it was good that they left Bethlehem when God is... Disciplining them? I mean, how can God discipline you when you get yourself out of the situation in which God is disciplining you? You could say they should have stayed there so that they could undergo the healing effect of God's disciplining hand, but they just kind of weasel themselves out of the effects of God's disciplining hand and they go somewhere else. And they think, well, God won't discipline us there. Well, He did. One dies, two dies, third one dies. But Ruth, Ruth never had a baby with Naaman. But she did with Boaz. The Lord providentially leads and guides all events. Also the biological events in a person's life. Working in those events, communicating his affection in those events. And Lord's Day 10 tells us that this really is what the providence of God is all about. It's about the almighty and ever-present power of God who lives in the eternal present and comes to live in the temporary past, present, and future with His almighty power, as with His hand, says the Catechism, upholding all things. You know, if if God would pull back His hand, you can take that literally. If God would pull back His hand underneath this congregation, this congregation would just well, it's a bit like an earthquake or so. You just kind of disappear into the ground. If if God would pull back His hand, none of us here would survive, would be supported and sustained. But because the almighty present power of God is upholding you and me and this congregation, we can live. We can survive. And God with His hand is not just upholding us, He's also governing us as with His hand. Just like He was governing Ruth's life and Boaz's life, so He governs your life and my life right into the most minutest details as with His hands. Working, showing affection, communicating, helping you. And from Lord's Day 9, we know that this is the hand of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 9 and 10 form a little duo. They're both about what do you believe when you confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And Lord's Day 10 is just taken apart to kind of zero in on this notion of providence. But it's tied to Lord's Day 9. And Lord's Day 9 has told us that this is the hand of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see the connection? This is the hand that was also upholding Jesus when He lived on this earth. This was also the hand that was governing all the events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, as with His hand, was always working in the life of His only beloved Son, was always communicating something to Him, was always showing His affection to His only Son, was always helping His one and only Son. So that nothing came by chance in Jesus' life, but all things came by the hand of his heavenly Father. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that because he lived in a very close relationship with his Father. Jesus was always communicating with the Father who was communicating with him. He was always interacting with him. And so Jesus knew, also as a human being, he knew his heavenly Father. And so Jesus was able to always give thanks to His heavenly Father, especially in good times. I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the babes. For such was Your gracious will. I'm not going to argue with You, Father. I'm just going to thank You for the way your hand, your governing and your sustaining hand, is being worked out in Israel. And Jesus was very, very patient when things were against Him. And even the children among us know how things could be against the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There were so many people against Him. But Jesus was very, very long-suffering. Lord's Day 15 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered during his whole life, but especially at the end. And the Lord Jesus Christ was very long-suffering in all of that. He never once threw in the towel, but he faithfully persevered right to the end. Why? Because he was so confident with regard to the future. Hebrews 12 tells us so beautifully, Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus kept his eyes on the future, He kept his eyes on eternity, and because he did, he was able to suffer long, be very, very patient in times of adversity. We can do the same. Can we not? Through faith. How thankful are you when things go well in your life? Think for a moment at some of the difficult times you've gone through. Or think for a moment, perhaps, at some challenges you are facing right now. How patient are you really? Is a little bit of a root of bitterness perhaps beginning to take root in your soul so that you kind of mumble to yourself, don't call me Ben or Susan. Just call me bitter. Mara, the Lord is dealing so bitterly with me. How confident are you with regard to the future. Nothing, nothing can ever separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to let go and place your trust completely in your Heavenly Father? Because He's always working. Always communicating, always there to help you. Are you willing and able to put your full weight on the hand of your heavenly Father? Just imagine this this huge invisible hand in your life, and you just kind of put your full weight on that hand. Just just let go, but not just kind of kind of hang on. But let go. Because you're in your Father's hand. It's not natural, is it? We want to control. It's so easy to want to control things in your life. See, Naomi and her husband and her children, it would seem that they left Bethlehem because they wanted to control their own situation. I already said it would seem that they should have stayed. But they left anyway. It seems like they weaseled themselves out out of a disciplinary, disciplining situation in which God was showing His displeasure but also showing His affection. And so, it's so easy to want to control and not just to let go and put your full weight In the hands of your Heavenly Father. And it's so difficult, so unnatural to remain confident with regard to the future. That, that wasn't natural for Ruth to say to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Right? Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my, that's not natural. For a Moabite woman to go to Israel into a totally uncertain future, that's unnatural. It would have been much more natural to take control of your life and not go there and to remain in the comfortable present in Moab, even though you don't have a husband. You may get one. Who knows? Ruth was only able to do that to make that wonderful confession in God. Because she knew God. She personally knew God. She interacted with God. And because she did, she had a sort of a personal knowledge about God's hand. That nothing could ever separate her From the love of that hand, the compassion of that hand, all the blessings that come out of that hand. Being able and willing to place your full weight on God's hand is ultimately the fruit of knowing your God and Father in Christ Jesus. Now, Ruth didn't know Christ Jesus, but we do. And here you have the connection with Lord's Day One. We're not our own. We belong to Jesus. And the Father loves us just as much as He loves His only begotten Son. As astounding as that may sound, it really is true. God has adopted us into His family His Trinitarian family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. So that the same love that the Father has for the Son, He has for His other sons and daughters who have been adopted in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes someone can ask you, how's it going? How are you doing? And then you're inclined to sometimes say, I'm not doing all that well. And I understand. I understand that. But there's also another way to approach that question. Someone says, how are you doing? Things are kind of going against you. And yet you say, I'm doing fine. And the person comes back and he says, really? Are you really doing fine? Yes, I am. Because Jesus is doing fine. Jesus is loved by his Father. And I am in Christ. I belong to him. And so if Jesus is doing fine, I'm doing fine too. Because in Christ, I share the same love that the Father has for His Son. And see, that can make a world of a difference in how you experience life. The good times as well as the bad times. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has comforted us this afternoon with the message of Lord's Day 10 that sometimes is affectionately called the Lord's Day of God's hand. Because now we know that the hand that enabled Jesus to touch the leper Is the hand that touches me. The hand that was on Jesus' shoulder when He stilled the storm is the hand that is on my shoulder in the storms of my life. The hand that was on Jesus' shoulder when He multiplied the loaves and the fish is the hand that will be opened and provide for me on a daily basis. The hand that was nailed to the cross is the hand that wipes away all of my tears. And the hand that holds all things together is the hand that will never let me go.